Well, Brother Al Foster promised to take a little bit more time in the morning. I can't promise to redeem that time in the evening. It all depends on how much I stick to or stray from my notes. So we'll see. So I would like you to think with me about a time that you decorated something. For most of us, the thing that jumps out to our mind is, well, we had Christmas most recently, and so you decorated the house, you decorated the tree. In my family, um, we've got this whole ordeal, this whole ceremony of creating an assembly line and unloading all of the boxes from the attic, piling them up in the living room and the dining room and everywhere. All the while, we've got music, uh, Christmas music playing, whether it's from a uh, CD or something on the radio. And then, um, of course, we decorate the tree. Now, I have a very simple strategy when I decorate the tree. I don't go for the front, I don't go for the sides, I go in straight to the back, make a narrow strip, and all my ornaments go boom, 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 boom. There we go, done. I don't put a lot of thought into it, and the reason I do that is because, frankly, I don't care that much about decorating the tree, so I want to accomplish it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. In contrast, um, there is something that I do like decorating, and I do think a whole lot about it, and I want to spend as much time invested in it as possible. Um, the bulletin board on my Sunday school classroom upstairs, we just started a new series. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what am I going to put as the banner on the top? What am I going to put in the middle? What am I going to put on the sides? There's some empty space right here. Do I fill it with something, or do I just leave it like that? Is this thing centered, or should I, would it look better if I move it over a little bit? All these things go into my mind, and I'm much more careful with the thoughts as I'm decorating my Sunday school board upstairs than when I'm decorating the Christmas tree. What's the difference? Well, the difference is I actually care about the, um, the Sunday school board, and so I spend a lot of time decorating the thing that I care about. And so as we transition into our uh, sermon tonight, I would like you to be thinking about that. What is, uh, do you, as a Christian, care enough about the Word of God to decorate your life to display the Word of God? We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 tonight. And so as we dive into Titus chapter 2, I kind of want to set the stage for that. Um, so the book of Titus, of course, is an epistle written by um, Paul to Titus. Titus was a missionary companion of Paul, and Paul in uh, the early chapter of the book refers to Titus as a son in the faith. So similarly, he has a similar relationship with Titus as he does with Timothy. And those of you who are familiar with the book uh, remember that Paul is leaving Titus on the Isle of Crete. Crete is a rather large island. It's got several different cities, and uh, it seems like Paul has come to the island and started some missionary work, and for whatever reason, he can't stay and continue, and he has to transition and go somewhere else. But he trusts Titus enough that he leaves him on uh, the island as the overseer of this budding Christian community. And so he says to Titus, I want you, while you're here on this island, to set up churches and set up pastors over each of the churches and each of the cities. Now, the reason for this, as he tells Titus, is there are people who are going around spreading false teaching. These people are looking to satisfy their bellies. They're looking to um, take away people from the faith for the purpose of making a quick buck. And you need to set up these pastors, people who are grounded in the word of God, so that they will be able to respond to these false accusations. And so that's, that's basically such the stage at the end of chapter 1 leading into chapter 2. 
So let's read our passage tonight, and then we will see um, what we can learn from it. Titus chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself as an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So if you're not careful as you're reading this passage, you might think that Paul's kind of scatterbrained. He starts talking about sound doctrine and then he jumps into talking about men and women. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, He's talking about the appearance of grace and then the appearance of Christ in glory. And it, it, if you just do a surface level reading of it, it seems like, where is this all coming from, Paul? But I want to show you, and hopefully we can see that tonight, that as, as Paul's pen goes from verse 1 all the way down to verse 15, that he has a single guiding thought in all of this. Um, and this single guiding thought which I know Pastor Dwight likes to wait until the end, until he gives you the theme of, the verse, uh, of, of our passage. But I'm going to spoil it for you right now. So the theme, because I want to, you to see this as it develops in the passage. This one guiding thought is that God expects each Christian to decorate his faith through holy living. I'll say that again. God expects each Christian to decorate his faith through holy living. So... Um, First, we want to look at the expectations. God has set certain expectations for us as Christians, and let's look at what those are. Starting in verse 2, it says, but as for you, speak those things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So even, before, even as he's introducing the expectations that we have as Christians, the groundwork of all of this is the preaching of Titus, particularly what it says is sound doctrine. That word sound, if you cross-reference it with all the other passages in the New Testament, you'll see it's often, um, when it's not speaking about something intangible like teaching, it's, it has to do with health. So, in a certain sense, you can think of this as Paul is saying to Timothy, or Timothy, to Titus, that as you are teaching, the, t- the kind of teaching that you have should be one that produces health. This is in contrast with the, with the type of teaching that these false professors of faith were going around, their sort of teaching led to sickness, spiritual sickness and death. So he said, 
Titus, preach that, uh, preach sound doctrine. And from that sound doctrine, the expectations for Christians are going to flow. But we have to get this as the foundational level of all of our understanding of expectations. When I say lives of faith, in modern terminology, faith can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I want to be clear, as Paul is clear here, that our faith rests on sound doctrine. And what is sound doctrine? Well, sound doctrine is that which goes back to the apostles and ultimately to Christ. And it's what is preserved for us in the word of God. This is not some teaching that I get to decide for myself. This is not something that I get to um, study myself and study other worldviews and determine for myself what's right and wrong. It's grounded in the certain truth of God's word. So when we say lives of faith, we're saying those of us trusting in the, the sound preaching of the word of God. And what does it reveal to us and how should we live? Let's look at that. So as we read the next several verses, we'll see that there are different categories of people. We see um, a division according to men and women, according to the young and the old, and we also see this fifth category of slaves. And so God has each of these different categories, and he has different expectations for each of these categories. Let's look at the uh, first category, that of older men. It says, um, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. So our, when we begin, the first category we have is that of older men. And as we think about age in our culture, it's something that's looked on very disparagingly. We don't appreciate age as we did in past generations. Um, we consider older people to be dinosaurs unworthy of respect. We, many of us are probably familiar with the phrase, okay, boomer, which was used to dismiss a bunch of people, demographics, solely based on their age. In other words, age was not relevant. And in particular, old age was to be looked down upon. That's not what the scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that old age is worthy of honor if it is accompanied with righteousness. And so, even as I'm describing, beginning to describe what should be characteristic of older men, some of you might be afraid. Well, is he going to draw a line somewhere, and am I going to be on the other side of that? If you are, hold this as a badge of honor, if you're faithful to that which God has called you. By the way, the line is kind of fuzzy based on, um, based on the way this word is used. It's difficult to determine where exactly to draw the line. Some have said it's as old as, or as young as 40 years old. Some have said it's 50 or upwards to 60. So I'm not going to nail down hard and fast where you fall, but recognize those of you who are in this category, clearly in this category, that this is, this is what should be evident of you. And those of you who are not clearly in this category of young men looking to grow into mature older men, this is what's expected of you. And in the same way, children here, the Bible doesn't specifically address children in this passage, but it does address young men. And you children, you boys, will grow into young men. You children, you girls, will grow into young women. And so these responsibilities that God gives to us are true for us as well. So we should be paying attention. So older men, what are these expectations? We've already read them. And um, if we could summarize them, we could say that older men are to be respectable representatives for the church. If we look at these requirements that we have listed here, uh, temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, and love, and perseverance, we see that these requirements show up within the, uh, the other pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy, as 
um, as Paul is giving the list of requirements for the pastors and deacons. In other words, what he is saying is that you older men, what should you look like? You should be the type of man whom could be a pastor or who could be a deacon over the church in the same way that the younger men, younger women would look up to the pastor as someone who rightly resembles Christ, so too should you older men be of the same character and same quality. So the, the, this list of, of, qual, of um, qualities here that Paul gives is the English equivalent, the English words we have here are, seem to be very, um, very easy to understand. I'm not going to dig into it too much, but um, Pastor Dwight did preach a, through a series on Titus a couple of years ago, and he was able to go into this in much more depth than I was. I'm going to try to take a whole chapter in uh, the time that we have now. So uh, he went into it in much more detail than I, I'm able to. What I will say here, though, is that God's expectations for older men are not tied to, at least directly, to their level of spiritual maturity. Remember, these, this is a new church. God's not looking at the older men as these are older men who have been Christians their whole lives. He's looking at them as these are new Christians, and yet God still holds them to this high level of expectation. And so by extension, if God has this much concern and much, this high standard for the new Christians on the Isle of Crete, how much more does he hold uh, the church, First Baptist Church of Sterling Heights accountable? So older men, you know the standard. You are to be respectable representatives of Christ in the church. Let's move on to older women. Uh, verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, and it goes on. So, um, the second category is older women. The, this command that we have here of the various categories comes with a purpose clause. See the word, so that. In other words, he's saying, here's, here's the motivation. Here's the reason for what I'm going to be describing to you. So as we try to understand what Paul is trying to teach to the older women, we need to understand that, that in light of the purpose. And what is that purpose? Verse 4 tells us, it is so that they may, they may encourage the young women. Now, that word encourage that we have in the NASB, if you look at some of the other translations, it'll say instruct, teach, and um, other things like that. So it's, the word encourage here is not simply a pat on the back. This is um, dedicated work. And in fact, even, the, even this understanding, this so that clause, this points us back to that we're teaching what is good in verse three. In other words, who are they teaching? They're not teaching the church generally. They're teaching the younger women in particular. And what are they teaching the, them to be? Well, I don't want to steal too much of the thunder because that's going to be in our, our next section, but they're, they're going to be teaching them to be um, loving representatives of Christ to their families. So this is the responsibility of older women. Again, if you fall into that category right now, praise God for that. You know your responsibilities. You need to be working with the younger women in order to encourage them to live up to their God-ordained responsibilities. You are to be holy representatives of Christ to younger women. Uh, it's one thing it's worth noting is that, um, that Paul does not give Titus a command directly to be the primary teacher of these younger women. The instruction is older women 
You, it's your responsibility to teach the younger women by embodying these values. Obviously, Titus, as we'll look into the, the responsibilities for the younger women, Titus is not the kind of person that can embody those values. And so he's looking to the older women who have already lived this godly example to stand as holy representatives to the younger women. So let's look at now at the younger women. This is the third category. God expects those young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. So if we look at all these commands, we notice that five of them apply directly to the home, home life. And two of them certainly have application to it. Now this is a, this is a, a, a thought which is, runs contrary to our culture today. I mean, most, most of the values here, they would say, oh yes, I heartily agree with that. Yes, women should love their husbands. Yes, women should love their children. Yes, women should be kind. Yes, women should be pure. Well, that's, that's actually up for, the, for debate nowadays. But in particular, they'll, they'll look at things as be obedient to their husband, be workers at home, and they will say, I, either the Bible's wrong about that, or that was a cultural problem, or that was a cultural issue of the day, and that no longer applies to us. So we have to investigate this according to what the Word of God says. And what does the Word of God say? One of the things driving this motivation is that they think any, any difference of function between men and women is an inequality, a, a disparity, a um, is God preferring, as it were, men over women? And they can't understand how the Bible can say, women, you are to be subjected to your husbands, you're sub- to submit yourselves. Notice, by the way, the command isn't husbands, you're to, sub- you're to force your wives into submission, but rather, wives, you're to submit to your husbands. And so as we investigate this, we go back even to Genesis. We say that both men and women were equally created in the image of God, And yet, Genesis chapter 2 tells us men were created before women, and this becomes significant as God determines uh, the structure of the family. Yes, God has placed men uh, in a a position of authority over women within the household. And yet, that doesn't mean that they are unequal in the sense of one is superior to the other. God has given them different functions to fulfill. And so, younger women, I mean, obviously this is speaking particularly to wives, Younger women who are not married, you don't have all these obligations. You still have the responsibility to be sensible, to be, uh, to be kind. But um, younger women, particularly who are, love, uh, who are married and with children, you have this responsibility to your home. This is not to say this is all you do and it has to consume your life, but this is a, a central responsibility that God has given to you. And you cannot push it off for other responsibilities as convenient as that would be in the society. So... We, in fact, we have a purpose clause right here um, in, in verse, um, verse 5. It says, so that, why are these young women to be loving representatives of Christ to their family? It says, so that the word of God would not be dishonored. Now, in this particular culture, in this particular um, environment, we, we would possibly have the situation where, where a, a wife got saved and the husband was not saved. And so this is, a, this is a particularly good opportunity for the wife to show Christ to her husband. If the husband looks at the wife and she is rebelling against him, if he looks at her and she's contradicting him, if he looks at her and she's being rude to the children, rude to him, he's going to say, what God do you believe in? I don't want to worship the God that you believe in. And so 
by being submissive to him, by being a loving wife, both to him and to the children, and being faithful to the work that God called her in the home, this magnifies the word of God in his eyes. So, young, um, we have the older women teaching the younger women. The older women are to be holy representatives to the younger women. The younger women are to be loving representatives to their families. Let's look at the younger men. The fourth category. There's only one direct command here when we read this. Uh, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. This word sensible has popped up in some form in each of these different categories. So if all you did was stop right there, you might think, okay, um, God's letting young men off the hook. They can be whatever, they can do whatever. First of all, we have to recognize that this word sensible carries a lot of weight to it. It speaks of self-control. And uh, again, this is one of the requirements um, for a pastor. These young men should be emulating some of the values that they would see in the, um, the head leadership within the church. What's more, the, the verse doesn't stop here. It does go on to say, um, speaking, of, speaking to Titus, um, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So he's holding up Titus now as an example. Titus, remember, is, is a young man as well. He falls into this category. And he's saying, Titus, you ought to be an example to these people. You ought to be a, an example that the young men can emulate. And how should he be a, a, a one that they emulate? He says, in good works. He says, in your, in your solid doctrine. You young, and by extension, if Titus is supposed to be one who is an example that the young men should look up to, the young men should themselves be saying, okay, I need to be committed to good works. Okay, I need to be committed to sound doctrine. I need to be committed to sound speech, which is beyond reproach. In other words, it's not just within the church that Titus or these young men are expected to communicate and demonstrate themselves to be faithful. They're expected to communicate and be faithful outside the church as well as representatives. So these Young men are to be sensible representatives within and without the church, outside the church. And they need to do so in such a way that they are without reproach. The enemy, it's singular here, probably speaking about some generic enemy, but it could also be speaking of this hierarchy of false teachers. So we got a number of false teachers and maybe there's some on the top. There's some ambiguity there. But in any case, it's speaking of someone who is an enemy of the gospel. And it's saying that you need to live your life in such a way that that enemy doesn't have the ability to charge you with anything. This is a very high calling for Titus in particular, and because all of the young men are supposed to follow Titus, this is a very high calling both for those young men and for them as well. And finally, we move on to our fifth category of slaves. This group is different since it's not based on um, gender, it's not based on age, And I'd be very surprised to find anybody here who would qualify as a slave. So do we just throw this passage, uh, just throw these verses out the window and say, have no meaning for us? No. Most of us who have been in church a while have heard the slave-employee comparison. And it's, it's certainly useful. I don't want to in any way say slavery was comparable to um, modern employment. What I do want to say, though, is that the, the principle that applies to those in, 
involuntary service also should apply to us who commit to voluntary service. That would, um, for example, extend to employees. That would also extend to people who are serving under other people in other capacities. It's, it's the hierarchy, I'm, you're above me, I'm below you relationship that Paul has in mind, and how in particular do these people manifest Christ to those. So, what are those expectations? Slaves are to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. In other words, they were to be diligent representatives to their masters. And as we take a look at this list um, that Paul gives, we have to recognize that this is completely contrary to the way that most slaves at the time lived. Not pilfering, in other words, not stealing, even the little things. This was something that slaves were known to do. We have the example of uh, Onesimus in the epistle to Philemon, where it certainly sounds like he stole something from Philemon, and Paul says, I'll pay it back if he has taken anything from you. So this is certainly characteristic of slaves. And Paul says, it must not be characteristic of Christians. You need to be excellent because your masters are looking at you. And, and similarly, as we talked with the husband-wife relationship, your masters are looking at you. Your masters might not be, sla- be saved. And given that there's no specific commands to masters here, it's very probable that, the, that most of the masters here have not yet trusted in Christ as their Savior. So most of the slaves that... Um, Paul is addressing are slaves which have no Christian master, and so they particularly need to represent Christ to them. So, um, he says, we need to, you need to be excellent in everything. You need to live in such a way, again, we've got one of those purpose clauses, that, um, uh, where is it, that, they, that um, you will show all good faith so that These slaves will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Remember, the theme for this is that we ought to decorate our faith with holy living. Right here, that word adorn is what I borrowed for uh, decorating. I drew that from this verse here in particular. In other words, they need to make their lives, they need to make the doctrine of Christ look attractive by how they're living their lives. So, we've got these five different categories and the expectations that Christ has for each of them. Now let's look at our motivations for um, for fulfilling these expectations that God has given to us. First, we see the past appearance of God's grace. Let's read verse 14 or uh, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That word for that you saw is a connecting word. It connects everything that we've just talked about to what comes after it. And so as he goes on to talk about the grace of God, we need to recognize that this is based on what we've seen before. It is the motivation for what we've seen before. And what's more, it's particularly tying to this idea of adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all respects. Now it says, the grace of God has appeared. That's that word, the, the phrase has appeared, that's past tense. It's something that's happened in the past. Yes, it's true that God's grace is evident to us right now, but Paul has in particular something that happened in the past. What's more, it says this is a, a, a grace which brings salvation to all men. So, 
this is, um, this is, there's only one event really that we can identify this with, a, an appearance of God's grace that brings salvation. That's the appearance of Christ in his uh, incarnation. We have here the greatest manifestation of grace that the world has ever seen, in which God the Son takes on human flesh, leaves or sets aside or veils the glory that he has as eternal God and comes to earth, lives a perfect life and dies on a cross willingly to bear on himself the sins and punishment that we deserve. This is God's grace manifested most brilliantly. And the emphasis here is on that grace and what flows out of that grace. So we see um, what, what flows out of that grace. It's, it says that it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. As we, as we try to understand how this, this sentence is structured, it's one sentence from verse 11 all the way to the end of verse 14. It's one of those famous Pauline sentences that just keep going on and on and on. And so we have to be very careful that we don't get lost in this train of thought. The train of thought, though, centers on, first of all, it's the grace of God. And that grace of God results in living. That's the main thrust of this of this sentence, that the grace of God results in living, and that living has different characteristics. First of all, we've got living, which, is, which instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And the, um, the NASB doesn't do a great job of bringing this out, but if we, for example, take a look at the um, ESV, that, that phrase right there says, we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Whereas instructing in the NASB kind of has a feeling of ongoingness, that word renounce in the ESV really helps to show us that this is a point-in-time event. In this, in this, yes, it is true that we are to continually renounce sin. We're continually to be rejecting ungodliness. But what Paul has in mind here is a particular cutoff point. After that point, everything, in, everything before that is in the past. All of your unrighteousness, all of your wickedness, all of your ungodly desires, that's done. That's been put away with. And, and after that, we see the effects of, um, we see the effects listed in, I'm trying to find where the verse is. Um, the, to live, now we, we, see the, we see the continuing effects. So we have, the, we have the event that happens in a point in time, this rejection of ungodliness. And then we see after that the continuing effects. Those effects are to continually live sensibly, righteously, godly. So, all, all that wickedness is done, and yet we're to continually be nurturing these godly desires. And the looking, so we've got these three aspects. Number one, like I said, this, this point in time in the past, that, that wickedness, you've resolved to set that aside. Number two, you're continually living. And number three, you're looking. So that, this actually leads us into our second point, which um, if you look at it, it's, it's arranged in a way that makes it seem like these two are equal. But in reality, this is something that flows out of grace. So there's really one main motivation. It is the past appearance of God's grace. And from that, we, we get another motivation, the future appearance of God's glory. So verse, four, uh, verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So, like I said, these, we have these three different aspects which flow out of life. There's this past event, there's this continuous event of 
of nurturing the faith, and then there's this looking, there's this future event. So we have past, present, future. All this comes together with this new life that we have in Christ. This new hope, it looks to the future. Now, the word hope, as we use it in today in modern language, it kind of has this idea of uncertainty. For example, if I say, I hope it's not going to snow tomorrow, or I hope that I'll see you soon, you know that I mean it could snow tomorrow, it could not snow tomorrow. We really hope that it doesn't, but um, we shall see. At the same time, if I say, I hope to see you tomorrow, or, or I hope to see you soon, I may see you soon, I may not see you soon. But as the word hope is used within, within the Bible, and particularly within this passage, it is this idea of expectation which rests in the character of God. So it's not something that's up for debate. It's not something that's shaky. This is something that is certain. Jesus said, I go to the Father, and if I go to the Father, I will come again to you. And uh, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends up into heaven, the disciples are looking up, and two men appear to them and say, in the same way that he ascended, he will also come again. And so Titus 1, 2 says God cannot lie. If God has made these promises to us, then the return of Christ is certain. So what is the purpose in all of this, though? It is, well, first of all, we, we see it is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a spectacular, it will be a spectacular event when it happens. Christ will appear in the glory that he has with God the Father, the glory that he has had with God the Father from the beginning of the world and in eternity past. The glory that he veiled when he came to earth to die for us, which Paul cannot think about the return of Christ without thinking about what he has done in the past, which is why he says, waiting for the hope and appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, and then immediately says, who gave himself for us. And what's the purpose? Why did he give himself for us? He gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back from every lawless deed. So he's, he did not just die for us so that we could have an inheritance in heaven. Yes, we do have an inheritance in heaven. But he died for us for a present purpose, and that purpose is redeeming us from the lawless deeds. The lawless deeds described here are those which are, in, are contrary not to the civil laws, but to the laws of God. We were formerly rebels against God, and yet he has, through his son, redeemed us so that we would no longer do that. And, it says, goes on to say, to purify for himself, a people for his own possession. So, on the one hand, he buys us back from our sinfulness, from our sinful desires. He removes from us our, our desires contrary to his righteous law. Number two, he purifies for himself a people for his own possession. He claims us as his own and purifies us, makes us holy and makes us righteous. And then, it goes on to say, zealous for good deeds. Going back to the illustration I said at the beginning, this is the idea of, of, of something you would want to do versus something you wouldn't want to do. You, the good deeds that you want to do here are not hanging up ornaments on the Christmas tree. The good deeds that you want to do are hanging uh, or decorating the Sunday school board. Why? Because it's something you care about. And why do you care about it? Because it's something Christ cares about, something Christ gave his life for. Verse 15 then becomes a bookend on our, uh, on our series here. Um, it ties everything together. 
It says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So the speak the things, chapter 2, verse 1, and then these things speak, chapter 2, verse 15, ties it all together. Again, like I said, one continuous thought flows through all of this. And hopefully, as I've been going through this, hopefully I've made everyone at least a little bit uncomfortable. God has set a high standard for each of us, a standard that nobody, nobody can reach. No one measures perfectly up to God's standard. There's always room for improvement as we are continuing to progress in our sanctification. So, the danger of having someone like me give this sermon is that I'm, I'm one of those young men. Uh, I can say definitively, wherever that line is, I'm definitely on the young men side of things. So, uh, the difficulty of that is it's easy to say, oh, well, David is speaking from a position of inexperience. David is speaking from a position of youthfulness. He doesn't know. I'm free to disregard him because he doesn't carry the authority that, that is required for me to take concern about this message, for me to care, for me to change my life. Well, Titus, this is the one, Paul is commanding Titus to deliver the same message. Titus is also in this young man category. And he says, the authority to speak these things does not come from you. The authority is ultimately resting in the word of God. Remember, going back to chapter 2, verse 1, these things are the things fitting for sound doctrine. This is the stuff which has been preserved for us in the word of God. So, what you, Titus, are to proclaim has not your power and authority to transform lives, but God's power and authority. So, don't receive this message from me as though it's something that I came up with. And anywhere that I have strayed from the faithfulness of the scripture, absolutely throw that out. Call me into account for it. Say, Brother David, you messed up here. Um, That's not what this is saying. But where I have faithfully communicated God's word, let that speak to your heart and let that authority reign in your heart. Tonight, we've seen that God expects each Christian to decorate his faith through holy living. God has designated different responsibilities to different categories of people. But each of us magnifies the word of God as we faithfully represent Christ within those categories. Older men are to be respectable representatives of Christ to the church. Older women are to be holy representatives of Christ to younger women. Younger women are to be loving representatives of Christ to their families. Younger men are to be sensible representatives of Christ within the church and outside. And those who are in submission to others are to be diligent representatives of Christ to their masters. The motivating factor behind all of this is the grace of God, the grace of God that saves us and the grace of God that produces a hope for us that causes us to eagerly anticipate the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance we've had to learn from your word. As I've been studying, this has been speaking to me that I know that I don't measure up as I ought to, and yet you've called each of us to an incredibly high standard in Christ. And yet you've not left us alone to reach that standard by our own efforts, but you've given your Holy Spirit to us to empower us, to sanctify us, and to guide us. As we look at our 
present situation, and as we look forward to the future, where you do expect us to be down the road, I ask that you would give each of us grace, that you would give each of us resolve to be faithful to that which you have called us. I ask these things so that Christ would be glorified in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.